Summer's over, and the justices of the Supreme Court are dusting off their robes for the start of the 2019 term on Monday. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the Supreme Court for Law 360 here in Washington. Today, Thursday, October 3rd, we're recording our first episode of The Term. It's a new weekly podcast that's dedicated to all things having to do with the nation's top bench and the justices that preside there. Each week, I'll be joined from our New York studio by co-host and Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy, and hello to all our first-time listeners. I am super excited to be joining the conversation with Jimmy each week and super excited for all of you to be joining us as we break down the term. Now, we all know that you have busy schedules, so we're aiming to give you the top highlights in about 15 minutes. That means we'll be updating you on the key petition grants and giving you the lowdown on the most important oral arguments and decisions of the week. That's right. And now that we're all basically best friends, Nellie, why don't you tee up uh, this week's discussion? What, what do we got on the docket today? Sure. So it's going to be a busy week. Uh, the court has uh, scheduled six cases of oral arguments, two are that, are that are consolidated over two days. High on our radar here at Law 360, and I'm sure for a lot of Supreme Court watchers, are Tuesday's arguments, as the court is dedicating the entire day, morning and afternoon, to cases involving Title VII discrimination protections. Uh, there's a lot of circuit split issues there, which we'll be discussing later. We'll also be getting into a case set for Monday's arguments that could affect criminal jury trials for certain states. Okay, so we're totally diving into the deep end, but first let's take a step back. The Supreme Court officially begins on Monday, but they actually got together Tuesday to decide what they're going to do with all these cases that have been piling up since they've been globetrotting around the world for the summer, giving law school lectures and teaching classes. And don't forget the baseball. I heard that Justice Kagan was spotted that night after the long conference at Nationals game. Yeah, it seems to be the sport of choice for members of the Supreme Court because I, I think it was Justice Sotomayor that just a few days ago threw out the first pitch at National Stadium, and I recall it being a perfect strike. But anyway, yeah, so now it's back to work, and the court has to decide what they're going to do with all those cases. And on Monday, they're expected to hand down what's called an orders list where they essentially announce which cases they're going to be adding and which cases they're going to be rejecting. Because remember, the Supreme Court sets its own docket, unlike lower courts, which essentially are mandatory. Um, one case that I've been watching is one called June Medical Services versus Guy. And that's a case involving an abortion clinic that's trying to strike down a Louisiana law that it claims will leave only one abortion doctor in the entire state. Now, a lot of abortion cases come and go in the court's docket but this one, I think, bears mentioning because the Supreme Court actually blocked the law from taking effect in February, saying it probably ran afoul of the court's decision not long ago in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt. So it's essentially a law about admitting privileges. Abortion providers have to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital, and that, the clinics say, reduces the number of people that are able to give the procedure. So anyway, it's a strong sign that the court will eventually take up the merits of the case. So I definitely think everyone should be paying attention. Uh, we could find out as early as Monday, but there's no guarantee that they won't relist it for a future conference. Anyway, Natalie, so you are going to be talking about a, a big case that has a lot of implications for criminal law that's happening on Monday. Yes, Ramos versus Louisiana. Uh, Louisiana also makes an appearance here. And in this case, the question presented is whether the Sixth Amendment's unanimous verdict requirement for criminal jury trials necessarily applies to all states under the 14th Amendment. So just to, to back up and give you some details, Evangelista Ramos was convicted of murder in 2016 in Louisiana State Court by 10 of 12 jurors. Um, now, Louisiana is one of only two states that has ever had this 
you know, non-unanimous jury rule. Uh, and, and they don't even have it anymore. They actually uh, decided after his conviction uh, to change the rules. So on the face, it seems like a relatively limited impact case. But, you know, for, for the people who have been convicted under under these rules um, and by a non-unanimous jury, of course, it makes such a, a big impact on their lives. Yeah, our colleague RJ Vogt actually wrote a really interesting story about these laws the, uh, that essentially allow for non-unanimous juries to convict people. And, you know, he says in Louisiana and Oregon, they actually have pretty racist origins, um, you know, in the early part of the 20th century when there was a lot of public outcry about certain minority groups having been acquitted by a non-unanimous jury. And that, you know, prompted state legislatures to, to amend their constitutions. But this one's really interesting because it seems like this is a, a, a phenomenon that prosecutors are all too willing to take advantage of, these, these non-unanimous juries, and it could have some big spillover effects, right? Exactly. And with this case, it could, um, if, if they decided to rule in favor of Ramos, the prohibition could be retroactively um, taken away, uh, basically, in Louisiana and possibly in Oregon. So, so it would have a, a major effect on, on all those who've been convicted and are currently serving terms uh, under these rules. Uh, now, the, the thing is, though, you know, the Supreme Court has previously ruled on this exact issue in 1972, um, a case known as Apodaca versus Oregon, where they did uh, say that the states were not held to, under the Sixth Amendment requirement. But of course, Ramos is arguing that the, the court should overturn that president. Yeah, so I understand that Apodaca case, is, it was pretty divided, right? It was it was far from the unanimous decision that, uh, you know, that the, the court has held in other cases. But even still, I imagine that overturning that case that essentially said that the Sixth Amendment's unanimous jury requirement doesn't extend to the states, that's probably no small task, right? No small task indeed. And, you know, for Ramos, he's not had much luck in the lower courts because of it. He's lost um, before the Louisiana State Appellate Court and the Louisiana Supreme Court declined to hear the case. Um, but he has made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, so, so there's uh, some, some hope for him, perhaps. Um, and it also, you know, it seems like a real fitting beginning for the term, uh, just given how much starry decisis was brought up last term and seems to be such another major thread for, for this upcoming term. Yeah, this one seems like it could be a case where the liberal members of the court actually are in favor of overturning the precedent because it's not as if, you know, preserving some, uh, you know, non-unanimous jury scheme in Louisiana and Oregon is something that the liberal justice would necessarily be in favor of. Yeah, and you know the Ramos legal team, I think, seems to to understand that. And it was so interesting. I, I found the first line of their first brief to the Supreme Court started with uh, quote the starry decisive shoes now on the other foot end quote, which is just a great line. Um, and and th that was a nod to arguments that Louisiana was had like you know renounced some key linchpin to the Apodaca ruling. But yeah, I'm kind of at a loss as to where the court's leaning here because you know. I I don't know if you remember last case, it was the Timms versus Indiana case involving, uh, you know, the Eighth Amendment's uh, prohibition of excessive fines, where the court pretty decisively said that, of course, that's incorporated against the states. But this could be a case where, you know, it, the court may have a little bit of, uh, you know, there could be a little bit of a hiccup saying that because it's been blessed by the court for the past, you know, close to 50 years. So I don't know if they're going to have that same unanimity on that yeah. question. Personally, I'm really curious to see where Justice Thomas lands on this one. Uh, you know, he is such a uh, in favor of the black letter of the law 
reading of it, of anything. But you know, the state of Louisiana has argued that um, Apodaca rests, rested on this historical understanding of what the Constitution's framers actually meant and understood uh, a jury trial to entail. Um, they've pointed out that during the passage of the Sixth Amendment, language that would have required unanimous jury verdict was actually removed, suggesting that the framers did not want to impose the requirement. So it'll be interesting, interesting to see where he, he kind of ends up leaning on this one. Yeah, I suppose we'll have to wait for the decision comes down before we find out what Thomas is thinking, considering he rarely ever uh, makes a sound on the bench at oral argument. True, although you know what? In the last few years, I feel like he's he's been piping up just a little bit more, so you never know. There, there was a case, yeah, last term where he piped up in Flowers versus Mississippi. Will, will Ramos versus Louisiana be the case where he breaks his silence this year? I guess we'll have to find out. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that brings us to Tuesday, where there will be three uh, cases involving uh, Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And the, essentially the question in all three cases, though there's a little distinction between two that are consolidated and one that's not, um, the question is, does the Civil Rights Act, does Title VII, prohibit uh, LGBTQ discrimination? And the factual overview is as follows. Essentially, Donald Zarda is one of the plaintiffs in one of the three cases, and he said he was let go from a skydiving company where he was an instructor, and he says that it was because of his sexual orientation. Uh, it's the same claim that Gerald Bostock, who was an employee for the Clayton County of Georgia, uh, who worked for the Child Services Agency, had made in a lawsuit of his own, saying that he was fired for being gay. Um, so those two cases have been consolidated under the question whether Title VII prohibits um, sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, Zarda actually won his appeal at the Second Circuit, which held, yes, it does. But Bostock lost his in the Eleventh Circuit, which held that, no, it doesn't. And really, the circuit split goes much further than that, I know. You know, just from covering this issue previously for Law 360, um, I know, like, say, the Third Circuit has tossed cases alleging violations based on sexual orientation, but the Seventh Circuit has a relatively recent ruling that um, did allow the sexual orientation to be included um, in a Title VII case. Uh, so, so it'll be interesting, you know, so obviously this, this is goes much further than the two circuits that are involved in this, these cases. Yeah, and there's a further wrinkle, which is whether gender identity is protected under Title VII. Um, so that brings us to our third case. And uh, that one involves uh, a woman named Amy Stevens who was fired from her longtime job at a funeral home after she told her employer that she was transitioning to female. Uh, the employer told her that it would be a distraction for grieving families, and she filed suit. Um, she actually won at the Sixth Circuit, which held that, yes, Title VII does protect against that uh, form of discrimination. And so here we are at the Supreme Court. You have these three cases with, you know, different fact patterns, but all essentially uh, circling around the same legal question. Um, so let's get into the arguments here. So uh, on the plaintiff side, um, the argument is actually a really interesting one because it's, you see the plaintiffs in these cases making what are known as textualist arguments. They're appealing to the text of Title VII saying that, you know, sex discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is necessarily discrimination on the basis of sex, just because of how wrapped up uh, th each of those concepts are in the expectations of one's gender, right? Um, so in their corner is a 1988 ruling Price Waterhouse Coopers versus Hopkins, in which the Supreme Court held that gender stereotypes 
stereotyping actually qualifies as sex discrimination under Title VII. So they're kind of trying to pick off the conservative members of the court, appealing to their textualist instincts. Now, now I know the administration's policies on on, uh, the kind of meaning of of sex in Title VII has also kind of been going back and forth. I, I seem to remember that the ACLU requested to intervene in this case because they and Stevens were worried that the EOC... Uh, which brought the case against the funeral home, would basically change its position after Trump was elected, uh, given some of the anti-LGBTQ rhetoric coming from parts of his administration. Uh, Where did that land? So uh, you're right. Uh, The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, they have long had the position that, you know, the the Title VII prohibits these forms of LGBTQ discrimination. However, uh, the Trump administration, and specifically the Trump Department of Justice uh, uh, and the Solicitor General's office, now under the uh, helm of uh, uh, Noel Francisco, they see things a lot differently. And they are actually representing the federal government, in this case, before the Supreme Court. And they've taken the position that Title VII should be understood as it was... Uh, it should be interpreted as it was originally understood under the public meaning of this phrase, which they say in 1964, sex discrimination didn't encompass uh, discrimination on the basis of one's sexual orientation or gender identity. It was strictly a form of male-female discrimination. Um, So they say that, you know, if... uh, Congress wanted to do something about it, they had ample time to include these other forms of discrimination in the actual language of the statute. And because they didn't, it shouldn't be upon the Supreme Court to essentially fill that gap. And so that's basically the argument uh, in a a nutshell. And yet so often that's the question presented for the court. (laughs) Exactly. I think we'll see that a number of times this year. Yes. Well, it'll be a lot to unpack next week, I'm sure. I'm looking forward uh, to breaking it all down with you, Jimmy, after the oral arguments on Tuesday. Um, That should be a wrap on our preview uh, and on our first episode. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Yeah, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Emma Cueto and RJ Vogt. Music for the show comes from Topher Moore and Alex Alana. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.